Welcome to the St. Vincent de Paul of Seattle King County podcast with Director of Marketing and Communications Jim McFarland. Compelled to action by the convictions of its founders, St. Vincent de Paul of Seattle King County joins the community to listen, engage, and build relationships that assist and advocate for individuals and families to meet basic needs and achieve stability and self-sufficiency. And that's what St. Vincent de Paul is all about. Jim, I'm so glad you're here today. Today, I want to kind of go back in time, turn the time machine on, and explore the history of St. Vincent de Paul and maybe, you know, find out how the impact of St. Vincent de Paul has been working throughout history and then what it's doing today. It's so fascinating a story. I bet a lot of people don't know it. Very good, Gary. We're happy to be here, and thank you for hosting us and having us here. We have a very interesting history, and it begins really in April of 1833, a young man named Frederick Ozenam and a group of his fellow students, they were at the Sorbonne, sophomores in college, and they were challenged by a couple of people about what had their group done, uh, the young Catholics over there, to help people after the revolution. And he went home and talked to his dad, and his dad said, you know, you should go out to the outskirts of the city and meet a sister named Rosalie Rendu, which they did. And she said, you know, I've got a suggestion for you guys. Why don't you form a little group and go do home visits, provide people with firewood, medicine, food, and stuff like that. So they said, that's a good idea. They got together, got organized, and formed a group called the Conference of Charity. And after about five days, they said, you know, we need to take the name of somebody who was really prominent in helping the poor. So they said, oh, man, Vincent DePaul, who lived in the you know, 1580 to 1660 or thereabouts, he was really engaged in helping the poor. We'll take that name and we'll call ourselves the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, which they did. Their group rapidly, I mean, very rapidly spread all over Europe. And within 12 to 15 years, they were in 10 countries and had a number of groups doing that kind of work. Boy, that's fascinating. So there really was a guy named Vincent de Paul. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. See, this is what a lot of people wonder when they think, yeah, was people, there a Betty Crocker? You know, yeah, so there exactly. was a, a Vincent yeah. de Paul. Go ahead. And well, give pe- people also think that we were started by the Catholic Church, which we weren't. We were started by a bunch of college students, which still, when I think about that, I find it interesting and unusual because you would think that it would have been started by maybe a bunch of adults or something like that. But these were young 20-year-old students who got organized and said, let's do this. And that kind of spirit and that kind of motivation is really what keeps us moving. So You know, that that is really cool about it because when you talk about a nonprofit organization these days, you know, a community partner, when it's really grassroots, that's Correct. what they mean. And this one has over totally, 100 years, yeah. some history. Totally grassroots. A, a grassroots people of neighbors and friends have said, let's get together and do something about a problem we see. Exactly. And that's what the, the students there did. And, you know, we we are now here in Seattle. We, we came to the U.S. in 1845. So not so much longer after it started in Europe, it really got to the United States. Exactly. And it was started by, as the details are somewhat fuzzy, but the the records indicate there was a a priest named Ambrose Heim who set up the first volunteer group there in St. Louis. And this was in like almost to the day. It was November 20, 1845. And the group initially got started. And it's one of the things about our organization that we really want to stress and talk to people about. We've been very active and involved in the immigration issue. And in 1845, our group that started St. Louis, their first level of service was helping immigrants who'd come to the U.S., going to St. Louis, because it was the kickoff point to go west. Yeah, that was the far west then, wasn't it? Exactly. And so we got deeply involved in helping immigrants immigrants get food, 
housing, and all sorts of other services. And that's how we got started, and it took off like wildfire. Wow. And its mission, has it been the same the whole the time? The mission has, and I think that's one of the things that keeps us vibrant, prospering, and growing. Our mission really simply is we reach out to help neighbors who've been struggling and help them and help ourselves spiritually while we're doing that, because that's important. And we know that people are hardwired to help others. And we, we see ourselves as a bridge to help vulnerable populations get access to services and get the help they need to get back on their feet and get moving. And our groups live that out by reaching out to help people. And we think more and more people are going to want to join us here in the future because we're doing that kind of grassroots work. And what's really important to know is that 99% of all the work we do is done by volunteers. This uh, isn't this again, isn't a load of staff people. It's yeah. volunteers where, you know, we're now in 155 countries. We have 4,500 small volunteer groups here in uh, the U.S. 80% of the people we serve are not Catholic. They're people that simply need help. And we don't turn anybody down. We strive to serve anybody and everybody. And it's one of those kinds of organizations that when people get around it and get into it, they go, you know, this is really a good thing. And it is. That, that's I like how you describe the volunteers. It still is, that means it's still grassroots. It's still people totally. in each part of a community totally. and says, I want to help my neighbor. And, you know, who is your neighbor? It's the people who live around us, whether we exactly. know them face-to-face or by name or not. Totally so, correct. So now I want to go back. Let's keep the yeah. time machine going yeah. here, Jim. In the 1840s, St. Louis, this is where, like, the Oregon Trail started, right? Exactly. So how did totally. uh, St. Vincent de Paul end up here in the northwest, uh, and then, I guess, specifically, yeah, let's what, keep it what, Seattle King County, too. Exactly. What happened from 1845, moving on into the you know late 1890s and whatever, we set up places in New York, we set up places in Indiana, we set up places in Ohio. Finally, a young man who had been a, a Vince, what we call Vincentians, who are our volunteers, he was from Chicago, and he moved out here in 1918 to get a job. He was actually being transferred from a government post. And we'd had groups try to get started here in Spokane in 1892, which they raised money, but the effort just didn't materialize. We tried again in uh, 1893. didn't happen. Finally, this guy, Charlie Albert, moves out here in 1918, and he goes to his church up in uh, Wallingford at St. Benedict's and talks to the priest, talks to the bishop and says, I want to start a St. Vincent de Paul here group. We don't have one. And I've been a volunteer for years in Chicago, and this is a wonderful organization. So he did. On January 26, 1920, he starts the first volunteer group at St. Benedict's, and we've been running a, a volunteer group, a very successful and active volunteer group there now for 100 years. And after he set up the first conference in 1920, we took off like wildfire. And within a year, we had eight conferences, and we officially formed our council in 1923. That's pretty cool. I, I love big uh, mile markers here. So yeah. 1920, here we are, 2020, on the cusp of this centennial anniversary you guys are celebrating, and that's whole part of the reason we're here today, talking about the history of it. Totally. And in the Northwest, 100 years. That's really it, cool. It, it is amazing, actually. It is. And and it, you're set up with, what you call them, conferences? And yeah, how we many call them conferences. And they're, they're small, tight-knit groups of people who believe deeply in helping their neighbors. And we have a 1,000 of those people on the ground here in Seattle working 
every day doing home visits and helping people who are struggling. So that's still part of the the mission, (laughs) helping people, individuals, keep them sustained and and, and just reaching out. Mission's still the same. And, you know, several things have really helped fuel the growth here in Seattle and all over the world, for that matter. You need a real strong organizer who can get in, explain the mission to other people in the neighborhood he's living in, in the church that he's in, and let's get it started. And that seems to be a a common theme wherever we go and however we function, we need to have a group of organizers who can do that. The second part, which I think is a little bit more self-evident, but you need to be able to visualize and internalize the problems that you see around you. And that's why immigration in 1845 was a big issue. That's why it was a big issue here when we got started. We One of the very first services we provided in the early 20s was to help Filipino men who had come here looking for work because Seattle was a vibrant, active kickoff place in the Northwest. And there were many Filipinos here who couldn't find jobs, didn't have housing, and needed food. So that was one of the very first things we did. Seattle being a seaport town, especially in the days before air travel. Exactly. uh, That's where immigrants started was at a major seaport. Totally. Yeah, that's sort of when the international district at the same time became giant. After World War I, yeah, I mean, things were really happening, weren't they? Correct. And, it, you know, again, our, our our people in that group, there were six gentlemen who formed the first little group up there. And so they, they started this organization to help Filipino men. Then they set up a, a way of helping children who had been forgotten and were ending up in juvenile court. So they provided them with housing. They provided them with food. And the third thing, which has always been constant throughout our history, is dealing with medical and dental issues. No we have, kidding. We have started and formed a, a number of medical clinics, and we started one in 1923 here in Seattle. So that was very active then. And we, the, as the demand for services grew, we needed to get more money. So we opened a thrift store in the basement of a church called Our Lady of Good Help in March of 1926. Business was so brisk that the people running it said, we need to get a, a, a like a store retail location. So they opened our first thrift store, which was then called the Salvage Bureau, at First and Battery, down there at the edge of Belltown in April of 1926. We did about $1,400 worth of business in that first month, and it took off like wildfire. In the 20s, I suppose that's a lot of money. I, that's an awful lot of money. Yeah. And, and those stores, those thrift stores, are what a lot of people, maybe that's the first impression they have of yeah. St. Vincent de Paul, and you're still doing the still thrift doing, store model. Yeah, we're still doing the thrift store. We have five of them now. And we've had more, and we've had... Uh, fewer, but we've we've sort of settled in on five locations around the county. And then in 1931, we set up a citywide food depot to handle all food donations to help people during the depression, depression which was a huge activity then. And we yeah, did go- all that kind of heavy lifting, you know, to deal with food banks, to deal with medical clinics, to recycle stuff and really try to help people all the way. Well, this is what I was going to ask as we're going, talking about history, because once the Depression hit, this was such a life changer for so many people, and charitable organizations like St. Vincent de Paul must have been in the forefront then, and we, when people really, you know, you've been helping people for a long time, but then more people than usual would have to turn and say, I need some help from somewhere. No question. So, and we were we were very engaged in in all kinds of services. And here's like a just sort of a handful list of things that we were doing in the 20s and 30s and early 40s. We had a pharmacy. We were helping with drug addiction treatment. We were helping with uh, transportation, with bus services. 
We had shelters. We did hospital and jail visits to try to counsel people. We set up shelters for young men. We did haircuts. We provided them with shoes. Um, we did toys for kids. We did uh, hospital visits. And then later in the 30s and into the early 40s, we really got into rent assistance because a lot of people were having trouble in the Depression paying for rent. So we began providing rent assistance, which we still do to this day. It's one of the primary services that our groups offer. And we provide free food and books at our at our food bank, and we're now doing health assessments there. So it took off like wildfire here. And those changes, man, that, that change as society changed, and especially, the, like I said, the Depression changed things. But as World War II ended, then things changed again. No question. And, and you just yeah. talked about some of those needs as people found yeah, different— Yeah, as, as early as 1932, really, and we'd grown to have— you know, I think by 1945, we had 30 of our volunteer groups functioning here in the county. And in the, in the mid-30s, Bishop O'Day, who was then the bishop of the, the church, said, you know, a, a parish without a St. Vincent de Paul conference should be pitied because this group is one of the best groups we could possibly have helping people in this community during this Depression. And so by 45, we had 30 of those groups. In the late 40s and 50s, which some people still remember this that, are, that were around in those days, we had over 30 little red trucks running all over western Washington collecting furniture, clothing, recyclables, and salvageable items. We were particularly active during the war in providing recyclables of all kinds of things to help with the war effort. That was a major, major yeah, responsibility. It sure was, yeah. And uh, people forget that, that that was a big deal. That was a big part of uh, being a member of the community. Your no neighbor, uh, pe- people, again, neighbors, uh, pitched in neighbors. to help, and that's something we kind of don't see today. The guys like you have to work at that. We have to go uh, out and really Vincent educate Paul, people on why that's a good thing. You uh, know? Uh, that, again, points to what leadership is and saying we can narrow this, describe what the vision is and being articulate about no why question. we have to help and no what question. The, the problems are. You know, another interesting fact that people don't think much about us, but, yeah, we— we're doing now like over 16,000 home visits. Well, in the early 40s, we were doing 6,000 of those visits, which was a big number then. And I think it's still a big number today, but it's mushroomed now to where we're doing 16,000 home visits annually to try to help people with their rent problems, with their utility problems, with food, with yeah, other I, kinds of services. This is a part of St. Vincent de Paul. I bet a lot of people don't know the, the home visit. Can you describe that in a little yeah, more detail? Yeah, it's, it's really it's our core mission work, which we've been doing since 1833. And essentially, people call our helpline, and they explain what their problem is. We funnel those requests for help out to our 50 chapters that are located all over the county. Our people then get the location and the name and the phone number of the person calling. We call them and say, we'd like to come out and see you, see if we can help. We have you know, volunteers all over the county doing that every week. 300 to 350 of those home visits are made every week. We go into the home. We talk with people. And one of the things that always transpires is this incredible feeling of support that they're receiving. And they're very thankful for the help. In some cases, we give them rent support, we give them utility support, all of which has to be verified and proved that it's legitimate. We don't just hand out money. We're paying the landlords. We're paying, in some cases, the the utility bills or whatever. But we're trying to assist these vulnerable populations get bridged into helping themselves. That's the idea. Well, that's a good way to say it. It really is. And it really is a bridge. And 
We do it's, we do wonderful work with that, and we still keep people in their homes. And we when do we use that now in a lot of our marketing and a lot of our communications work because it's it's so vital given this homeless crisis that's going on now. You know. Yeah. So it's, I do want Very to talk important. about that when we sure. get to, if we ever make it up to oh. present day. We're walking <laughs> we'll through there. history here with we'll St. Vincent one de Paul and Jim McFarland. One of the other things I, I just wanted to mention as we grew rapidly, in 2013, we brought in a staff person who is now our executive director, Miriam Munoz Roach, came into our organization in 2013, and we talked with a lot of our South King County volunteers, and we determined that we really needed an initiative to help Hispanic people out in the south end of the county. We did, and that group is now, it's called Central Rindu. It's been in business for five and a half years. We are now serving a thousand people a year with education assistance, language assistance, other kinds of social support services, help for people that are undocumented and whatnot. And it's just growing and expanding like wildfire. And it's a wonderful program. But again, it's this one person has the juice to really identify a problem and say, let's do something with this, which is a big thing that we've done in the past few years. Two things about that I want to make me what you said. It's called Central Rindu. Central Rindu. And yeah. as we started and we talked about the early history, yeah. the name Rindu was mentioned, right? Yes. I mean, it was. And our, the people, Miria and other people who started that uh, program took her name because she was so active in France and helping people who were struggling. And imagine this, if you would. 54,000 people went to Rosalie, Sister Rosalie Rendu's funeral in Paris when she passed. That, that's an incredible number. I don't think that's as large as some cities wow. to have 54,000 people go to your uh, and funeral. And the other thing you, you just talked about was the way people are realizing that St. Vincent de Paul is a place for help. And that must lend its na uh, to the the home visits one at a time, meeting people face-to-face -face builds trust. Correct. And, and just sort of the empathy seems real, and people can say yes to their neighbor. St. Vincent de Paul will help you. I mean, that is the way this has lasted over 100 years. That, is that, that right, Jim? G Gary, it's right on the mark, and it's it's one of the key reasons why we get such a volume of calls. We Many of the people that need this help are calling the 211 King County Crisis Communications Line. Yeah, 211 is a number that the county supports us. Here's where you need, if you call and need this, they'll say, oh, you need to call these people, you need to go to that people. They figure out exactly the services and around We the get county. thousands upon thousands of referrals from them every year. And we follow up with them and ask them, why are so many people wanting, needing to call us, do you think? And they will tell us really specifically, you folks are known as people who treat everyone with dignity, and respect and trust, and that it's that also spreads like wildfire. So that's why people turn to us to get the help. Hey, can we can we jump to the '60s and the '70s now? Because again, if we're talking about the history of St. Vincent de Paul here in Seattle and King County, things continued to evolve in society and the Northwest in specific. Absolutely. And so St. Vincent de Paul probably went through some changes too. We went through an awful lot of uh, a lot of change in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, and. One of the things we did, we moved uh, a lot of our salvage bureau locations down to South Lake Union. To this day, we still own property there, which helps us with uh, generate a lot of income to support our programs. But we created a program in the 60s called the Sunday Bundle, which we now call Stuff the Truck, which are trucks. Oh, yes, yeah, Stuff going the out, Truck. Yeah, Stuff the Truck, going out into all the areas of the county and having events to collect clothing, 
furniture, and other items which we sell in our thrift stores to support our programs. Uh, we celebrated uh, Frederick Ozenam's 130th birthday in 1963. Uh, at that time, we had, uh, again, like 30 conferences, and we were very active, obviously, in the Boeing uh, layoffs of the early 70s. Yeah, I mean, the need, economy here it totally a, quite yeah. the turndown. It was a, the late 69 or early 70s. Or, Correct. Yeah. Totally uh, and tanked, for years, and there was... We were very active in that, and we were getting loads of requests for people who needed uh, rent help, who needed furniture, who needed food, and we were very active in that crisis during that time, which is what our organization has typically tried to do, which is to move, to feel, to see, and know what the problems are, and then be able to react and uh, move on. You know, the the other thing that happened that, I mean, I think this is, is quite common from what I've learned in a lot of private nonprofit groups, most of which were dominated by men in, in that era. And we finally allowed women into the society in the mid-80s, which sounds crazy, but that's the way the groups were then. But um, Well, we, that's part of moving through time in history. We, we see that that's the way things were in the past, and now things certainly have changed, haven't they? Oh, no, no question. Totally the truth. So in the 80s, women became, women uh, became very members active. and leaders. We that. had uh, women helping run our organization then, which is really positive, and it's stuff that we should have been doing. To this day, I mean, we and, and recently we, we just had an election here, which I was going to talk about a little bit later, but I'll mention it now. We have elected a, a wonderful woman to be our president, Mary Jo Shannon. She was elected in July. She selected two other women to be officers, and then Miriam Munoz Roach was named our executive director. This will be the first time in our history that we've had a complete slate of top people. We have one man who's treasure also, which I shouldn't forget, but... The president of our organization, the key officers, and our executive director are all women. And I'm really excited about that because when I joined the society uh, as a staff member in 2011, I was asked at a management committee meeting, what are some of your observations, Jim? And I said, well, I find it odd that we don't have any women sitting around this table, and we don't have any people of color, and our website isn't very well done. And We've made major strides in all those areas now. We have women running the organization. We have many more Latinos and African-Americans and uh, Asians in, in our midst now at the table. And we have women running the organization. And I think it'll make us a better organization, particularly as we move forward, because women are, are, are more wired than men and they're more connected. And Vincent himself had a tremendous uh, a colleague named Louise Merillac who helped him with fundraising Clear back in the you know the early 1600s, Frederick Ozenam had the support and the guidance of Rosalie Rendu, sister Rosalie Rendu. So, women have been a, an incredibly strong and potent force in our organization, and we're in that situation again, which I think is a, a really good thing. I think so. that's neat that at the 100-year milestone here in Seattle King County, St. Vincent de Paul, that yeah, things have changed enough, and we see yeah, women are in leadership roles at St. Vincent de Paul. That's awesome. Totally, it's it's really a it's a good thing and it's a big thing, you know, but. It's also important to look back at some of the men who did really make major contributions to our organization over the past hundred years. Our founder, Charlie Albert, we, we would be nowhere without him. I'm not sure how quickly the society would have come here without his dedication yeah. and steadfast attention to making the whole thing work. Well, let's you know? keep talking. you got some other names throughout yeah, the history of Seattle. really worth mentioning. Uh, Maybe worldwide, nationally, or sure. at least locally? It, locally, uh, a gentleman by the name of Louis Esterman. He was one of uh, the co-founders with uh, 
uh, Charlie Albert, and he was really instrumental in helping with the immigration issue and with providing legal and educational assistance for all kinds of folks. And we ended up setting up an endowment after he passed away, which we still use to this day. We have some of our groups that need extraordinary help. When they get a real complicated problem that needs more resources than what they can provide, they're allowed to reach into the Esterma Fund and get funds to help. Another really significant name in our history and in our council organizational structure, a man by the name of Tommy Kobayashi, who was Japanese. He went to the University of Washington. His family, along with others, were sent to an internment camp in Idaho during the war. He set up a St. Vincent de Paul conference there when he was interred. And then he became president of our council in 1962 and was very active in the organization. I met him in 2013 at a council meeting He lived to be the oldest active St. Vincent de Paul volunteer in the world. He was 101 years old when he passed in January of 2018. Wow. Remarkable story and a remarkable man. That sounds fascinating. I wish I would have met him. Incredible. There were two other people I think are worth mentioning. There was a man named John Peluso who was really active in our organization in various kinds of positions from 1947 to 1993. And he was really a grassroots operator, believed deeply in the home visits and providing urgent care for families and medical help and all that sort of stuff. Finally, the the man that ran our organization from 2013 to 2019 was an incredible leader for us who turned us toward being more accountable, to being uh, sharing more resources among our volunteer groups, provided just an incredible amount of strong leadership. His name is John Morford. He was in a Vincentian for 40-some years. He helped set up uh, a lot of programs at Blessed Sacrament Church where he was a, a parishioner, and he, he did marvelous work for us. So I really wanted to mention him as well as someone else who really drove us and helped us figure things out. That's awesome. I'm glad you mentioned all those names because it is individuals over the years that's kept the yeah, St. No Vincent all vibrant for and without those years. folks, like right now, our new president, Mary Jo Shannon, is— really active in getting us organized to think broader about issues that are affecting us in all the communities here in King County, which is something that's really been necessary. And her leadership will be critical for us as we go forward, because we have some real challenges facing us that are also facing the community. You know, we're celebrating our 100 years of service in uh, 2020, starting in January 26th, but there's a lot of work to do here. In our case, we need desperately need new facilities. We're going to be putting together a capital campaign to figure out how to get us into stronger and better facilities because they're just crumbling around us. They oh, really so, are. So now we're talking about the future, exactly. right? Okay, yeah. great. So there's another hundred years there that we we're going to talk about. Exactly. You and I are still around. That'll be a, a good one to have. No, you'll, you'll be the marketing director in uh, 2120. <laughs> in 2120, yeah, exactly. But we desperately need new facilities. We need to bring in uh, younger and more active people into our organization, which we're, we're going to put that together. We need to reach out to the broader community and get people from every stripe, every color, every age, everything associated with us. Because what we do is is really at the core of what we're about as a people. And you said it earlier, Gary, we, we go out and we help neighbors. And neighbors are our friends and relatives and people that live around us. And we all need to get more engaged and understand the value of lifting up someone 
who may need help, if it's just to say hello or to give them their mail if they can't get to their mailbox or whatever it might be. And we're, we're going to try to do some of that kind of communicating during the, our centennial, but that's the core of who we are and what we do as an organization. And it's the core of who and what we are as a people. We're about being together and helping each other. And we really want to make major strides in that area this coming centennial year. Yeah, you're exactly right. And what you said earlier, you used the word dignity and just looking someone in the eye, handing them their mail, saying hello with a smile on your face, offers someone dignity as a human being. No question. I, I can't tell you. I've been on a number of home visits myself. And in each case, one of the things that happens during that visit is that you get transformed, and the person that you're with gets transformed because the connection of helping someone else is something we're hardwired to do. And yeah. we need to get, get off our phones and get out away from our TV sets and get out and see who's living around us and engage and make it a, a better community because that's what it's all about. So I, we think our future is solid. We think our, our mission is core to who we are and what we do. We want to make ourselves better known throughout all of the communities where we work. And we have really strong leadership again, and we're very excited about that. So we think the future is bright for St. Vincent Paul, and it'd be marvelous if I could be here in 2120 to, to talk <laughs> yeah. to you about all this again. Well, Jim, it sounds like we could talk a lot more about all of the work St. Vincent de Paul has done in Seattle and King County for 100 years now and into the future. So, yeah. Maybe we'll be back in 100 years to, to go again. Exactly. Uh, but again, online, you mentioned that a website, you know, this yeah, part of like are, looking into the future. People yep. can learn more there, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Come to uh, svdpseattle.org, svdpseattle.org. We have a lot of information up there now on who we are and what we do. We're going to be focusing on the centennial here in several weeks. We'll be converting over a lot of the website to centennial activity and information about us. So... We would encourage everybody in the community to look us up, learn more about us, and consider joining us because we're, we're the place to be, I think, going forward. Yeah, I think so, too. Thank you so much. I'm Gary Scheip. We've been talking to St. Vincent de Paul of Seattle, King County, Director of Marketing and Communications, Jim McFarland, about 100 years uh, success here in the Seattle, King County area. Jim, thanks so much for sharing the work of St. Vincent de Paul. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it very much.